Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a topic that I would say is pretty much on the forefront of the minds of 90% of civil engineers, which is the path to partnership in your engineering firm or starting your own firm, which is another way to get to partnership, which will be covered in this episode. What we're actually going to do is we had a panel called the Path to Partnership at our Engineering Career Summit in New Orleans earlier this year with some dynamite guests who I'll introduce in a minute. And we're actually going to play the recording from that panel. And it is a goldmine if you're interested in becoming a partner in a civil engineering firm. You're going to love this episode. So before I introduce our panel members and dive right into the panel, let me take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you're thinking about taking the civil FE, or PE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in civil engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use the promo code CIVIL at ppitopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com, and use the promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. All right, so we're going to jump in now to our main segment of the show, which is going to be the recording of the panel, and I'm going to take a moment to introduce our three panelists and then our facilitator. Our first panelist is Will Schneer, who's been on the podcast before, one of the most popular episodes of the Civil Engineering Podcast. Will is the CEO of Big Red Dog Engineering and Consulting, an engineering news and record top 100 design firm, a Zwig Group hot firm, and a business journal's Fast 50 company. Will is well-versed in the project review and development permitting process, having worked closely and very successfully with neighborhood associations, city and county review staff, environmental groups, and public boards and councils. He's also the author of two publications, Land Subdivision, A Practical Guide for Central Texas, and the book on license agreements in the city of Austin. He also serves on the board of directors for the Real Estate Council of Austin. Will's been great on the podcast before. He was great in this panel. You'll hear him momentarily, and he's really built up his expertise, which is something we always talk about on the podcast. Our next panelist is Deborah D. Keller. Deborah is a Louisiana licensed professional engineer with over 35 years of experience in planning and engineering projects, of which 27 years included engineering positions held at the Port of New Orleans. After retiring from the Port of New Orleans as chief engineer and director of port development in 2014, she formed her own engineering firm, Deborah D. Keller & Partners. The firm, which also includes Deborah's husband, provides consulting services to both public and private sector clients. The Kellers are passionate about making a difference both personally and professionally and giving back to the community by using their knowledge and experience in the engineering, construction, and operations industry. And last but not least was Jim Hans. Jim juggles many tasks as the vice president and chief financial officer of Eustis Engineering. As CFO, he oversees the financial management of the firm while managing complex civil engineering projects. Jim joined Eustis Engineering in 2003. He earned his bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Bucknell University, his master's degree in civil engineering from the University of Texas at Austin, and his MBA from Tulane University. He's a licensed professional engineer in Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. James has been involved in a multitude of projects at Eustis Engineering for various governmental agencies as well as private sector clients. He manages geotechnical services associated with commercial, industrial, environmental, and civil works projects. He has significant experience in geotechnical design of flood protection structures and coastal restoration features located along the Gulf Coast. And to that end, I just want to say that if you're are in Louisiana and you've been affected by the floods as of recently. We're praying for you. You're in our thoughts and in our prayers. It's like seeing just another problem down there after they had some flooding problems in the past. So we're all with you and we're all thinking about you and hopefully you'll be able to repair and recover as soon as possible. 
All right, last but not least, I just want to introduce our facilitator that you're going to hear in this session, Bob Mora. Bob's the vice president of Bator Engineering. He is a licensed engineer and land surveyor in Louisiana. He's a longtime friend, Bob, and he's been a member of our community known as the Engineering Mastermind for some time now, and he was instrumental in helping us to plan this event in New Orleans earlier this year. So with that, we're going to jump into the Path to Partnership panel, and right now you're about to hear the first question from our facilitator, Bob Mora. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. When, when do you feel it's an appropriate time if someone's working at an engineering firm to sort of broach that subject of, you know, am I, am I part material for a partner at this firm? You know, sometimes, like, I would think maybe it's not good if you just graduated from college and you're getting your first job and you're interviewing to bring up that you're interested in being a partner, or maybe it is. Um, so if y'all could maybe address that, the timing of when is a good time to uh, bring that up. Sure, I'll, I'll uh, start off. But I think certainly not when you begin. Uh, uh, and it really depends on the type of firm that you're with. Um, uh, our firm is, is employee-owned. employee owned. It's, it's a broader ownership. But in, in for, for me personally, it, it, you, you really need to think about the company and the interests of the company and look, I mean, certainly thinking about yourself, but try to look on a longer horizon than just the next raise or when, when am I going to be partner and try to really invest in, in you know, your own future. And what I mean by that is, is working hard and try to, to develop yourself and, and be prepared to, to work long hours and to go above and beyond that. And um, for me, it was, it was, you, you start to see that the higher-ups notice that, and uh, it, it's something that just kind of a discussion that came about organically, and it, it wasn't necessarily a, we don't use the term partner so much, but uh, to, be, to be kind of moving up in the company, um, you can kind of uh, gauge it. And, and so it was really for me, it was more of an organic thing that just kind of happened as you're spending lots of time there working hard and trying to, to do the best for the company, being a company person, that's when they start to realize, okay, this is, this is somebody we need to keep. How do we keep this person here? I never viewed my career as a set it and forget it type thing where, okay, this is what I'm going to do and life's going to stay that way. I've always had what Oprah Winfrey calls those aha moments. And, and then other times I have fought very hard and seriously and prayed over things and, and made sure I wasn't making a rash decision. But for me, my first nine years in the private sector with a consulting firm, I, w I was very happy and I got my PE and I was being mentored and things were going great. And I had interned there my senior year of college. And my aha moment was I put in for a promotion and I didn't get it. So I went to one of the vice presidents that was not a member of the family, of this family-owned firm, and wanted to be debriefed on what, what did I lack, because I had one year more experience, I had more responsibilities than the person who got it. And he was very honest with me, and he said, you're not married to the owner's daughter. I said, no, I'm happily married already, and I don't plan to marry into the family. Um, and he says, look, I'll be honest, it's a family-owned business, and family's always going to come first. He says, um, what he didn't tell me was that he himself was ready to move out of the family-owned business and did so a few months later. So with that, that was my aha moment. It was a wake-up call. And the best time to look for other opportunities is when you're not under the pressure that you've been laid off or you just grow so frustrated, you hate to wake up in the morning and go to work. I answered a blind ad in the paper. It turned out to be the Port of New Orleans. They had a new CEO. They were cleaning house and just reinventing the whole organization. And um, lo and behold, I got the job. So I'm, and I was jotting down dates throughout my whole career when I had other aha moments. And we'll see how the questions go, and I can always share those other aha moments in the last 30-something years. Well, I, I, most of my professional experience has been in greater New Orleans, but I, I venture to say it's probably similar to other, other areas where you have a whole mix of companies that are uh, you know, 
publicly traded companies or, or privately held companies. And then the private companies, some are extremely closely held, like Deborah was alluding to, and some are broader, like, like the company that I work for. Um, so you, know, you really need to, uh, like I was saying before, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a match between you and, and that company. So no matter how hard you work or how much of a company person you are, ownership may not be even in the cards. You're great, yeah, but sorry, but the ownership is, is not is separate from management. Um, so that's you know, something you just need to be aware of. If you want to be an owner of a company, and you don't have maybe the gusto of, of Bob Mora to go out on your own and do it. You know, pick a company that, that is an employee-owned company that is wel welcoming to, you know, selling shares and, and doing things uh, uh, to accommodate the future of, of the company. That's, that's a very good <laughs> point. You know, publicly traded companies you can buy into. You can go buy the stock on the stock exchange the day of your interview. Other firms in our industry are owned by an investor consortium uh, and not by the principals within the firm. As a young engineer or an engineer who has visions on being a partner in a firm, I think it's important, you know, you don't want to be a partner in a firm that you don't respect the other partners. Uh, it's very important that before you start announcing your intentions to be a partner that you're comfortable with the way that the management, upper management of the firm is operating the firm because you're not going to come in as a new partner and change that in many circumstances. You're going to come in as a new partner and offer your opinions, but very much the management's going to continue doing what they're already doing. So you have to be comfortable with the firm you're in and want to be a partner in. And from the employee's perspective, you have to appreciate the sacrifices that go into buying into an existing partnership. Very, very few partnership opportunities are given. There's typically a financial commitment that you need to make over a period of years to buy into some stock, especially if it's a well-established company and the stock is worth something. If it's a new company or a startup, um, you know, you have a different opportunity there uh, to pursue the partnership. But uh, if you're at a 50-person firm, 75-person firm, you know, 5 to $10 million in revenue, that stock is going to be worth something. And the owner is not, owners are not going to be that eager to just give it away. And from the company's perspective, you know, our firm in particular is also what we call employee-owned, though not an ESOP. I don't know if that's we're what you were referring yeah, no. to either. You know, ESOP companies are something we can, we can get into, but... Uh, when we say employee-owned, we mean you must be a full-time employee of the firm uh, in order to own shares in the firm. We don't have people from the outside that own part of our company, and uh, we shoot for about 10 to 15 percent of our staff uh, to be on the in the shareholder ranks. And we've achieved that successfully uh, and go through a process every year of determining who may be eligible. And the number one question, I mentioned it this morning, uh, that we ask of a candidate is, do you bring more into the firm than you take out of the firm on a daily basis or on an annual basis? Uh, and that can be through, we tell folks every year, that can be through work one, through goodwill in the community, through training and mentorship within the firm that makes the other parts of the firm more valuable to the ownership group and the investors in the company. Uh, so there are multiple considerations you have to, you have to put forward in your mind and answer before you go around naming your intentions and proclaiming your intentions to be a partner in a firm. Okay, so here we had a question. What skills did you wish you could have worked on before you became a partner that would have helped you where you are now? And Will Schneer is going to start by answering this one. Let me start by saying I'm one of the three that started the company. So the easiest way to become a partner is to start as number one at zero, which is also one of the hardest and most rewarding ways. You know, I, di I didn't have a choice. I mentioned earlier this morning, for those of you that were here, I had been laid off during the recession. You know, my alternative was to collect my $400 a week of unemployment and uh, play golf three times a week. And believe it or not, starting an engineering firm is cheaper than playing golf three times a week. <laughs> uh, so I, I think what I would have really... You know, and I was never more than a project senior project manager my last year at Jacobs Engineering. 
uh, I would have really liked a little bit more financial education and operational education and how to operate a firm effectively. As it is, I had to learn that on the fly, and the way you learn on the fly is by making a lot of mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Some of them were more expensive and more, you know, moving me in reverse than others. I'm stronger for making all of those mistakes now, and it helps me as I manage younger people and new partners that are making similar uh, mistakes or on the, on the path to making those mistakes. But financial and operational, related to the business that clients don't see and the public don't see, financial and operational aspects of being a partner are something that I think most engineers are naturally underdeveloped in. You, know, you can do the engineering. You know, if you've been in the leadership role in a firm previously, you can, in theory, get in front of a client and pitch your services. What happens once you get that work signed up is a whole different story. Uh, you know, give an example. I've got a CFO here who can, who can speak to this, but you can grow so fast that you run out of money. You know, sales does not cure all. And I come from a marketing and sales position in the firm. You know, that was my passion. Luckily, we got some good advice about year four that you're growing too fast. You know, you don't have cash flow problems because you run a poor firm. You have cash flow problems because you're taking on too much work too soon and having to invest in the things to uh, accomplish that work uh, before the money is there, whether it's hiring employees, buying computers, leasing office space, all of those things. Uh, so, you know, that was a rude awakening for me to learn that you can be so successful you run out of money. You know, I didn't think that was possible. Right. I'll, I'll touch on that tomorrow a little bit with uh, cash is king or cash flow management. Um, the nothing's jumping out too much. I, I something I, quite frankly I still struggle with is is um, the ability to 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 plan. Uh, I don't think I I plan enough um, or, or do so. I think that would be uh, it's, it's just an ongoing struggle for me. Uh, to, to optimize my my time and uh, I think spending time up front to plan whatever that is uh, is is critical and then to, to execute on that uh, and to allow some bandwidth so, so to speak for disruptions that that always occur so that's that's something that I think uh, see if with with my career path I I wasn't quite as a uh, abrupt as Will's with him starting his own firm, but mine, I've, I've been with this company for the last 13 years, so it's, I think I've developed as, as I've uh, been with the firm and uh, gotten more ownership of the firm. Um, and during that time, I, I uh, earned my uh, MBA, I was doing that part-time. So um, I wanted to do that to, to help uh, give myself a skill set that some of the folks in the firm didn't have, and it was something that the firm needed. That's something I, I think it was it was key for me to, to help uh, bring bring something new to the table within the uh, senior leadership that wasn't there, and I knew it was needed. And it may be similar to Will's that we we actually were growing quite a bit at the time. We're a New Orleans firm, and this uh, this was after Katrina. Companies founded in the late '40s, but we were really one office company and right when the storm hit in 2005 we had about 60 employees and after the storm we we grew quite a bit and we actually really doubled in size uh, with all of the work that was going on and during that time we also added offices so the complexity of the firm uh, was there wasn't so much prior to the storm anyway that's when I started to get the uh, the business degree and I think that really helped helped me. Uh, so, and at, once I was done with that degree, of course I was doing it part time <coughs> over a three year period. Yeah, I was still managing projects and doing developing technically, and driving my wife crazy in the process. But once I was done there, then it, I think it was I was able to then step in more into uh, a financial management role within the firm. So, uh, but again. Uh, time management that's just such an important process whether you do it every morning or certainly you know maybe Sunday night before the week starts uh, however you do it but I think it's really critical to to plan things out and, and 
to execute on that plan and always revisit that. So. Well, I got to tell you about two more aha moments to answer the question. <laughs> so I'm with the port eight years, and the port sends me to a port executive management leadership conference for a whole week here in the city. And at the end, the last session, they made us write a letter to ourselves saying, in one year, I will have, and you filled in the blank, you gave it to the facilitator, and they were going to mail it back to you at any address you wanted one year later. And for me, after being there eight years, I was just dying for a promotion. I was ready to move on. Well, in the ninth year that I was at the port, shortly after that conference, I realized the reason why they sent me to it is the CEO calls me in and he says, how committed are you to the port? Are you, are you planning to leave town? Or I don't know what your goals are. And I, I told him, he says, are you, bigger, some, are you ready for something bigger? And I said, yes. I said, okay. The next day, he calls all the employees into an auditorium and announces that he was promoting me and doing some other shuffling around the organizational chart. He didn't promote me to my boss's position. He promoted me to my boss's boss's position. So I jumped two levels to chief engineer. And my surprise was just as much as everybody else in the audience, which was better because uh, to carry that secret for a few days would have been really, really hard. <laughs> um, so I had this aha moment that this is great. I've got this job. I'm now equal to the chief financial officer and the chief legal counsel and the chief of operations and the chief of personnel and administration and this kind of stuff. And I said, I never finished my master's. I had started and then my daughter came along and the, you know, the promotion has come along and stuff. And I had another aha moment that I'm going to need a master's because this port CEO is not going to be here forever. And the next person may say, I'm sorry, you know, you people are not civil service at this level. You have, you're at will employees, and you're the only one without a master's. So I'm going to demote you and get somebody with a master's. So um, I went at night for two years to UNL and got the engineering management master's degree. And sure enough, about one year later, um, that port director CEO we, uh, left to go to Charleston. And we got a new one, and I was just so proud that I, there was no reason. I had the experience, and I had the master's degree. And so that being um, looking ahead to the future and anticipating didn't put me in a position where I waited for the day to come when someone said, oh, but you don't have a master's, and then realized I didn't have the educational and the skills. I mean, that's where I picked up my background in finance and organizational behavior and, and everything else. So uh, for me, I anticipated that, and that's why I urge you not to set your career and forget it. Anticipate where are you going next and what education or what other experiences or type of projects you need to work on. Okay, so we had an interesting question or comment here from an audience member who said, I just wanted to say that I work at an ESOP, which is an employee stock ownership plan company, so all the employees own the company. And I'm one of the people here who says that I'm not growing fast enough. I'm not advancing at the speed that I want to, and so I want my own engineering firm. I knew this for different reasons, but one of them was because there are people who are satisfied with coming in at 8 every morning and leaving at 5 every afternoon. But that's just not me. I'm the person who gets in before my boss, and I leave every night after my boss. I think that showing those skills and determination is what helps you to advance. But Will, what do you do when you have an employee who feels like he has met all the requirements to basically be an owner, and you as the company don't recognize that yourself and offer that to him? Specific to your firm, there's ESOP owners, which is everybody who's employed, who own a percentage according to their salary, I assume, yeah, it's all their base so rate. Plus, there's another group of owners who own shares on top of that? Not necessarily. Okay. At least if there is, they're not transparent. Okay. All right. Regardless, of, you know, if you're in a firm like us and you're in that situation, is how I would answer it. The way we handle the process, it's a documented process. Anybody who asks gets a document handed to them by their boss called Pathway to Principle. And the first step <laughs> of that is, you know, be the best in your position at what you do in the firm at any level. If you're the best CAD designer, if you're the best project engineer project manager, uh, client manager, 
what have you, any of those positions. If you're clearly the best at your level in your office, that's step one. That's entirely on the employee. If there's a misalignment between the employee's thoughts there and the manager's thoughts there, that's really a communication problem between those two parties. We have uh, performance reviews annually with quarterly checkups on how you're doing on a progress plan. If you get told you're doing great every quarter, you're doing exactly what we want, you're a star, and you're still not you know, seeing the results you want, there's a misalignment of communication there. So it's really the first onus is on the manager to have an upfront dialogue. But in June, we have this coming up at the end of June, in our June officers and shareholders meeting, we accept names from officers. We have uh, six service lines in four different offices with under just under 10 officers in the company. Those 10 officers have the opportunity to put a name in the hat. That's it. The name is in the hat. In the, at the conclusion of that meeting, the shareholders, 50% of the shareholders have to vote that they're interested in learning more and want to interview this person. And then in the August shareholders and officers meeting, they are interviewed by people, the officers of the company who are not in their office. And we have a list of 20 or 25 to 30 questions. You know, everything from tell us how you, very first question, how you bring more to the firm than you take out, you know, all the way down to do you really know what it means to be an owner financially regarding the buy-in, regarding, you know, if the market slows, if the company experiences trouble uh, in terms of winning new work and there's a slowdown or a shrinkage of the company that the owners are the first ones who take a pay cut and if you know, 2008 or 9 happens again, the owners may be bringing money to the table to keep the lights on in the business, not just taking a pay cut. You know, there's a series of very difficult questions that have to be asked, and you have to have a certain level of business acumen in answering those questions, but it's really by officers in the company that you don't have a day-to-day -day relationship with. Following those interviews, 60% of our outstanding shares have to vote to extend an offer to you to buy in. And what we say is there's no obligation. If it's the offer is extended to you, you don't have to say yes. We want you to say yes, but we realize everyone's financial situation is different. But those who do say yes uh, work with the executive team. Executive Compensation Committee is who handles it for us. And the quantity of shares that they want to buy, the term of the note that they want to take on to do it, and uh, we make our transactions effective uh, January 1 of the following year. But uh, you know, back to your original question, if there is a miscommunication on your position in the firm, it's really a local issue, it would be in our firm, between the local management team and the employee that's agitating for the opportunity. And it's a great opportunity for both parties to realize what the shortcomings are, what needs to be improved in order to have your name nominated in the hat. Yeah, you, you said it, it just seems like communication, is there's a gap there. I just encourage you to try to have a meeting and ongoing dialogue, not just right. one-time meeting. Right. Know? Express that you want that opportunity, and don't just say, "Give me a performance review like you always do." Give me a performance review that's so critical it's seen in this light. How do I get the opportunity by the other shareholders in order to have the chance to buy into what you guys are doing? So it doesn't eat away at you. All right. At this point, Bob Mora, our facilitator, asked a great question. He says. Kind of as a follow-up to the last question, Will started touching on some of the negative aspects of being a partner or business owner. Maybe you could touch on some of those because sometimes the grass does look greener on the other side. People say, I want to own the company. Look at all that money. Can you please quickly run through some of the problems that you might encounter as an owner of a company or a partner or a shareholder, whatever they might be? Right. Well, the more... You want to start with personal guarantees? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. The financial piece is, is what can be very stressful. Uh, as, as the company's doing well, then, uh, that, you know, that's great. But uh, there's always a chance that um, things can contract. Or if you have multiple offices, you start to maybe get concerned about, you know, how, how we're doing within each office and, yeah, right. The more the more stock you own, then the more you're susceptible to uh, that stock going down. Or, or uh, as as Will was alluding to, uh, if you have cash flow problems, you're doing great with 
generating revenue and projects are profitable, but you're not able to convert that revenue to cash, you know, that could be a serious, serious problem and you have to make payroll. So having conversations about that, which has happened before um, a long time ago, but talking about uh, payroll, that's a, not, a, not a good conversation. Um, <laughs> the employees who aren't owners get paid first when there's right. an issue. Not the owners. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, and then uh, you know, Will alluded to the debt piece. Uh, so you, you know, we're talking about stock or ownership or equity, but there's likely debt there as well with, with some uh, banking institution that uh, you have to service that debt, make payments like a mortgage or anything else. So um, you know, those things are there. Think about uh, renting versus owning a home, right? Uh, it's uh, maybe a similar type of scenario where uh, you have to make, you know, your your, your payments on your, your mortgage, and you don't want to be over leveraged and and have uh, these massive payments. Uh, so you don't want to be paying your company for the stock while they're you're an owner and you're get taking a pay cut because times are tough. That right. could be a double whammy. That's right. Right. Well, my business model as a business small business owner is quite different. And in fact, if you catch up on my aha moments, it was only four years ago or so that I realized that I no longer was aspiring to be the next CEO of the Corning Alliance. I thought long and hard and went through discernment and said, you know, I've been thinking the whole time I'm here that my eyes are on the gold ring, the brass ring, and the prize, and I want to be CEO. And there was talk of this present CEO uh, retiring in 2017. And I started to think about it, and I said, you know, one of the things that is frustrating about being chief engineer is I have tremendous responsibility, life and death stuff when it comes to, it's like running a small city. But my authority, as a, I'm still a government employee, and the authority is minuscule compared to that responsibility. If I take the CEO job and offer the CEO job, which is a political process more than anything else, I said, oh my gosh, that's, even more responsibility, and again, the authority of the CEO because it's governmental and it's got a board of commissioners appointed by the governor. I said, that's even, that's even worse, that's just jumping out. I, I wanna be a CEO, I want to do the things that I do best and have a passion to do, things that I would even do for free if there was some you know, altruistic motive to, to do something like that or totally got bored with life, but, um, to do what I have talent for and a passion for, and do it with people who are the similar mindset uh, of myself, that has the same core values that I have, not do the things that I'm really good at, but I hate to do. We've all got that. Remember, they talked about 25% of the time, you have to do things that you really hate to do, but it pays the bills. And the business model was not to go into debt, to stay small. My business partner's my husband, he's a minor partner, but we sat down and we went through what we wanted to do and had a passion for and were good at, what we were good at but did not want to do under any circumstances, and things that we would always have loved to have done, but it wasn't what the Corps of Engineers did, it wasn't what the Port of New Orleans did, but we'd like to be a part of it. We did that, then we did our business model and said, okay, we don't want debt and we don't want employees. We were sick of employees. <laughs> for the first few years, no employees. We've had managed hundreds of people, and we want to start small, we want to be sustainable, we're not looking to go rent an office building and take on debt and shareholders and, and all that. We're being realistic. We just have a passion for doing engineering in this area with people we know and trust and people like ourselves. So I don't have that stress. And I'm, it's not like I'm 30, 40 years old and I've got you know the house mortgage and the kids have to go to college and all this other type of stuff and worries that you have at that time. And we both retired with pensions. But I'm not saying, you know, we do this just out of pure fun, but we're not even 60 years old. So we're too young to hang up our slide rule, if you know what a slide rule is, <laughs> and go marching off into the sunset. Now here's another question directed at Will Schneer. Will, you told us the story about your company and how you've grown it. You've given us a lot of information, which was very interesting. You talked about becoming a partner, and you mentioned that you went basically from zero to a partner immediately in zero days because you were unemployed and golfing and you decided to start the company. 
the question that I have for you is you went through this tough moment. You were laid off and you were golfing and you made this decision to start this civil engineering company. I know how passionate you are about growing this company. It was the 26th largest engineering company in North America last year. Was there some kind of switch? In other words, what made you go from losing your job and then all of a sudden starting this company and growing it and getting into this entrepreneurial state? It seems like such a rapid change. We're in Louisiana, so I'll use the term golden nugget. I had a chip on my shoulder the size of the golden nugget and wanted to prove to people who decided I wasn't valuable enough to stick around wrong. But I've always wanted to be, I've always enjoyed the business aspects of the engineering field. And, you know, I'll kind of give a, a winding answer, Anthony. The good news about being an engineer is you're competing with other engineers. You're not competing with business people, by and large. Um, so you just have to be incrementally better to be a little bit more successful. And if you're a lot better, you can be a lot more successful than some of the smaller firms. You know, I think Bob mentioned being an owner is a way to get rich. Be careful with that assumption. It's certainly not a way to get rich in the first handful of years. It's a lot more of a way to humble yourself than to get rich in the beginning. And uh, over the cycle of owning a firm, it will come and go in waves. You'll have up cycles and down cycles where you're, you're doing great, and cycles where you're really uh, battening down the hatches to keep water out of the boat. I use the phrase, you know, we're a growing company, so cash gets spent quickly. Uh, but, you know, for a growing company, you don't get rich by owning the company. You get rich when you sell the company uh, and cash out your shares. And, you know, d different definition of rich for everybody. But as you consider being a partner, I would suggest that there's three types of potential firms out there that you could be a partner in. Two of them are desirable. Uh, one of them probably isn't. The one that's not desirable is the firm that's not growing and not well-run and not profitable. Avoid trying to be a partner in that firm. The other two are a firm that is very profitable and very well-run but not growing and profitable and the other firm being there's a profitable and growing firm. So let's take those two firms. The one that's profitable and growing, as an owner, you're not going to be getting a whole bunch of dividends or distributions out of that firm. So you're going to generally maintain your same lifestyle while you own the stock in that firm and hope that Cardinal or Stantec or AECOM or one of those big boys comes and makes you a deal you can't refuse and buys your firm. Then you cash your chips in and earn your reward for owning the company. If you go back to the firm that's, so your stock is really your value in that growing profitable firm, uh, not your dividends. If you go back to the stable firm uh, that's profitable and well run, you're clipping coupons. You are getting dividends every year and distributions every year. You know, if it's a $10 million a year firm, they may be distributing half a million dollars a year. But even if it's $200,000, $300,000 a year to three or four or five owners, you know, that really adds up. But the stock doesn't appreciate. The stock's going to be worth the same it was when you bought in. And you're really looking at ultimately still an internal transition or a sale at a much lesser value. Both of them can be very rewarding, depending on what your objectives are. Uh, at the small 10-person firm, you know, million-dollar-a-year firm, you're very much going to be the main client liaison. You're going to be a seller-doer. The value of the firm will very much be in the value of the partners. At a firm that's much larger, where there's a second-tier management team in place, that a buyer comes in, the key owners leave the firm within three years of the sale, second-tier management team still there to run the company, there's a lot more value there that a buyer is going to reward the shareholders for. So, you know, if in your current firms or as you build a firm, be thinking about, you know, what kind of firm you want to be. Is it a closely held small firm that has dividends and you get rewarded every year? Or a large firm that's growing, you know, a small firm that's growing into a large firm where you get rewarded when ultimately you sell the company? Is, you know, one one chunk of advice or bug that I would put in your ear as you think about the firms you're in today and whether you want to invest in them. There is no such thing as a fast-growing, unprofitable firm. They run out of money in 
go out of business. So <laughs> uh, that's why I said there were three options out there, and two of them are desirable. Here's a question for Will Schneer. Will, did you have ideas of building your own civil engineering company early on in your career? I did. I did. No way. I mentioned this morning I took the PE exam a month before we started the firm. I didn't expect to do that. I thought I'd have a decade or more of experience under my belt before I took that leap. Market forces, and by the grace of God, I did what I have been able to achieve. And at the time, the three, the three founders were all single with no children. So if we screwed up or if the firm wasn't successful, we could all moved into the same apartment and uh, <laughs> lived off each other's unemployment. Uh, now that I have a wife, all of us are married, now that I have a wife and a kid and another one on the way, I couldn't take a 100% pay cut and take that risk. That would be, that would be reckless for my family. So that's an, another thing to consider. I'm not sure. You know, I'm now at the 12-year <laughs> mark out of college when I expected to start a firm, and I'm not sure if I was an 80, 90, $100,000 a year project manager at Jacobs that I would have the financial wherewithal, the financial savings, you know, with children, with a wife, with a mortgage <laughs> to, to go do this in this environment. So all those, those factors are in play. A couple of my friends who stayed employed uh, during the recession joked, Oh, El Presidente, you're the president of the firm, president of a firm worth nothing. And I said, I would retort back, you know, the only, only person who can give you the president title is you uh, when you start your own firm. Um, you know, very few firms transition that role without an outright sale. Hats off to those that do. But, you know, if you want the president title, if you want the CEO title, if you want to be the major shareholder, there are some hard decisions you need to make, but that opportunity is there. You just have to be prepared financially and emotionally to do it. I mentioned we were all single with no children, but there were also two others. So I actually had, you know, shoulders I could cry on and could commiserate with. Bob and Tim here in the front row, I don't know what I would have done if I had to go home at night and talk to myself and figure out what if what I was doing was right. So I would, you know, if that's something that interests you, I'd also con urge you to consider finding a kindred spirit and a partner uh, to help you in that endeavor and work with each other. And There's a lot more crying than uh, high-fiving in the first few years of running your business. Just to piggyback on that, make sure you have partners, if you go that route, that have complementary skill sets. That's critical. Not everybody's business development or technical and you need to have mixtures of that and, and try to recognize what you don't have and what you do have and you know, complement that with, with folks uh, if you go to start a venture. So. And get your prenup in place before you start the firm, <laughs> not when it's worth something. <laughs> with your partners. No. <laughs> you don't want to decide who gets what with no partnership agreement in place. And right here was another great question from the audience that went as follows. In general, how do you evaluate your future leaders and future talent? Is there something that your companies do on a regular basis, or is there a process you use? How do you think about the future of your firm as far as your staff, specifically who's going to be able to fill certain roles? I'm not sure we're quite as formal as Will. Um, we have you know, annual... Uh, appraisals that we do, performance reviews. We have 100 employees, about 20 of them are engineers. So we, we typically are, you know, the engineers are the folks who are the future leaders uh, in our group with a couple exceptions. So I, I don't, we don't really have a formal process for that, Anthony. It's, you know, it's, we're still a fairly small company, so we can really assess the landscape pretty easily. It's uh, you know, we're, we're managed pretty closely. Uh, again, it's just kind of the, the skills and, and what the, the folks bring to the table. You know, for us, culture is really important and making sure that that person not only has good work ethic, good critical thinking skills, but also has similar values as our company. I think that's really, uh, that's critical for us. So I think when you, you can bring those few things together, that's, you know, what we would 
identify as a, as a future uh, leader. At this point, I actually followed up with another question for the panelists that went as follows. What things might leadership first notice about a person to say that this is a person that might have a really good future in this firm? Things that might jump out. Or to rephrase it, how early on in someone's career would you be able to take notice that this person potentially can grow into a leader in the company? I'd notice that at the first job interview. Um, one mistake I've seen, because the Port of New Orleans had civil service rules and type things, is that when you were evaluating and interviewing a person for an entry-level job or even a, a project manager job, you were really, your hands were tied. I always wanted to look at somebody that I could evaluate not just this job that I'm interviewing for, but the potential to be the next chief of engineering design or chief of construction or chief of facility maintenance. And then, you know, seeing them as deputy director of engineering and seeing them with that sort of potential. Too often, um, because of those civil service rules, when I left the port, I felt that the deputy director who got my job, I had mentored her enough, and when I hired her, um, I was looking for, for certain qualifications, say, this will be the person who's going to replace me one day. And unfortunately, I think when the time comes that she's looking at some baby boomers retiring, she's going to look around and say, some of these people that are project managers don't have those basic qualities that we talked about today to even want to be motivated to ascend to, oh, that's too much work. Oh, there's not enough pay increase to take on being chief of construction or this type of thing. So for, for me, hire not what you need today, but what you and your company needs five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. Just don't evaluate to plug a hole today unless you are anticipating that you're upsizing for a super project and you're going to have layoffs anyway, and nobody really likes layoffs. So and it's perfectly fine to hire somebody, and the shoes are bigger than their feet, but you know that they're going to grow into the job. I like putting people in a job uh, that is more demanding than they're ready for, yeah. especially if I think that they've shown an aptitude or a knack for being able to fill those shoes, I guess I would suggest to answer the question, how do you identify them? You know, they're kind of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They identify themselves. They stick out like a sore thumb. And it starts with having happy clients, clients that go to them directly for their issues, that, uh, you know, when there's a mistake or, a, you know, a contentious issue permitting-wise, that the client's still comfortable with that person and isn't, you know, climbing up the, the corporate chain to get to the vice president or president or CEO, that that engineer is instilling that confidence in their client, that that engineer is, we say that a successful project manager's clients keep coming back. That's step one. If you want to be a client manager, you need to be leveraging those happy clients into new clients and bringing work into the firm. That's how you go from a project manager to a client manager. First step is be a successful project manager. And the ones that are, are they stick out. The question we ask ourselves uh, as we consider these future owners or superstars, if you will, in the firm, regardless of ownership track, is would it hurt us? How, could we easily backfill that position if they left, number one, with somebody internal? And number two, if they left, are they capable of being a formidable competitor? If the answer to the first one's no and the second one is yes, you better put some golden handcuffs on that guy. You know, but this bodes well for engineers. It is not easy to fill leadership roles and manager roles and seller roles. You really need to build those up from the bottom. You know, if one of our key sellers left the firm, even if they're a partner, the firm would be damaged to some degree, and I can't put a job ad on the internet somewhere or on our website and fill that position without a whole lot of effort. You know, and it may take years to backfill that position if there's not a, a next in line coming up internally already. So if the real answer is they stick out, and you need to be hiring smart people who are capable of 
sticking out. You know, don't have an ego such that you're worried about hiring somebody who could take your job. You know, you, you're not promotable until somebody can take your job within the firm. And that goes for me, too, as the CEO. You know, I'd love to have half a dozen people who could take my job if something happened to me. And a lot of engineers struggle with that idea that there's somebody coming up behind them who's better, faster, more productive. I've learned from some of my friends that have small businesses, especially if they're new, but even the ones that have been in business quite a while, hiring somebody into a higher level and a trusted level may mean that they have access to your client database, your financials, and, and other things. And you really, it's like inviting a stranger to, it's like changing your house into a bed and breakfast and inviting people, <laughs> strangers, to come into your home, personal home. And I've seen people be burned. Um, it's amazing how a well-dressed, well-spoken person can sell you on their, their features and advantages and wow, this is great, but you really don't know the person and references these days for legal reasons don't really tell you much when you call a reference. And find out that, you know, they've been playing with your books or they've been doing this on the side or, you know, things and you don't want to get into legal action, you know, you're embarrassed, you know, all these other things that come back. When you groom your own talent and you're not just hiring somebody at a higher trusted level that's into those things, and it kind of reminds me of the model here with Usus Engineering, they didn't just put an ad in the paper for a chief financial officer and say, well, we'll get somebody with talent. I mean, this is financial stuff. This is the crux of their, their business and their cash flow and everything else. They, you were there quite a few years and worked your way into developing that trust relationship. So I would just caution, especially anybody starting a new business, of um, who you're bringing in at that level that's going to have intimate knowledge of your business when you haven't known them very long. All right, so let's just break at this point. What you should know here is that earlier on in the day, Will Schneer talked about a gentleman named Bailey who works for him. And Bailey's a friend of mine. He's been a longtime member of our community, the Engineering Mastermind. And Will mentioned that he had tremendous success at Big Bread Dog. Bailey actually went from being hired as an intern, working his way up to a partner. And so in this next section here, Will uses Bailey as the perfect example of someone who stands out and is very noticeable. And Bailey would be a perfect example of someone who sticks out, you know, with a big red light on top of his head. You want to lock a guy like that up right away. You know, it costs you very little to cut someone in at a tenth or a twentieth or a half a percent of the firm with the opportunity to buy more as they progress. What you don't want is another, you know, I'm sending, I mentioned this morning, I'm sending these guys out to professional organizations, getting them involved in the community. That means my competitors know who they are too. And if I'm not treating them right, you know, giving them the opportunities for growth, giving them the opportunities to participate in the management of the firm and to learn how the firm operates, get involved in the business planning process, somebody else will. You know, you mentioned this morning that you were so impressed that we put everybody on the website. We don't hide our people from the community and from recruiters. We take the approach that, you know, recruiters get, recruiters get through the switchboard to me, you know, so they're getting through to our engineers and our project managers. You know, we take the approach that they're going to get through. They're going to be able to have those conversations with our people. You know, they're going to send them emails through LinkedIn and things like that. The onus is really on us as a, you know, a modern-day employer to make their situation so desirable and so rewarding that those calls really, you know, bounce off of them and that they're comfortable with the opportunities in front of them at our firm. They don't listen to somebody whispering in their ear about what they could be doing somewhere else. Yeah, uh, Bill, Bill Gwynn said to me in 2008, early 2008, he says, Jim, we'll take care of you if you take care of us. And i never forget that. And it was just resonated when he said it to me. And that's, that's what Will's talking about. And that's where I was getting back to the culture is, you know, when he said that, I said, oh, geez. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do, do what I can for the company and I know it's going to come back and and so here I am today and you know I think it's it's uh you know paid off pretty well so so you heard Jim Hance he's in the process of talking about a conversation that he had with the owner of the company kind of back and forth about the future and some decisions that he had to make and then at this point 
someone in the audience basically says that a lot of this is about culture. And this person in the audience goes on to say, my previous employer was very clear of where the culture was and how he wanted to align it for his company. But it also became very clear that it was not the culture that was acceptable to me. And it made it clear that options for me staying at this company were impossible. And now you'll hear Jim Hans respond to that. Yeah, I mean, with, with this conversation, I, 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 you know, I knew that if I just keep stay the course, uh, you know, I'd be uh, you know, promoted and you know, would, would move up uh, within the company. So it was more of a put the brakes on a little bit, Jim. It's going to happen. It was that kind of conversation. So and That's a much different conversation when you have respect for the guy and admiration for the guy who's telling you that right. as opposed to contempt and uh, distrust. You know, if you don't have a good relationship with the man who's, or woman who's delivering that message to you, you will have a different reaction like you suggested. Yeah, right. uh, but if that's the case, if that's the guy or g- girl who's holding the keys to the firm, you know, maybe you're already getting wandering eyes anyway. You know, but res- mutual respect and admiration and appreciation is certainly the, the first step. I mentioned it earlier. Make sure it's a firm that you believe in and want to be a partner of because... You know, you're spending more time with these people than you are with your spouse, oftentimes, on much bigger financial decisions uh, a lot of times. So you need to have that level of trust and respect. And uh, I very much have a great deal of admiration for my business partners uh, also, and hopefully they would say the same thing. But, you know, that's, that's a big part of it is you didn't respect the guy who said, we'll take care of you if you take care right, of us. You right. said tell you where to put it, and I'm going to go look for another job. <laughs> Show me the money. <laughs> Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, I hope you enjoyed the panel called The Path to Partnership. It certainly was really, in my opinion, jam-packed with really valuable information and advice from people that have made it in the civil engineering world to try to help you navigate the path to partnership. I want to close out with with one big thought on it, but before I do, I'd like to just take a minute to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FE or PE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams, and I recently had a chance to demo their civil FE and PE review courses. It's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code CIVIL at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com. And use the promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. So I think the real big takeaway for me from sitting through this panel and being there and and speaking with the panelists even offline after the, the panel was the communication. I mean, if you want to be a partner in a firm, it shouldn't be a secret. You've got to get it out in the open. You've got to let people know as early on as possible because that's going to help you to understand what you have to do to get there. And, you know, some people just try to hide it or, I don't know, maybe they don't feel comfortable yet that they want to do it or they're not comfortable with the firm, and that's fine. But as soon as you know that you think that this is a firm that might be for you, then start talking about it and tell people about it. And if you think that maybe partnership isn't necessarily the best approach for you, maybe you're thinking that you want to own your own firm, then that's fine too. That's certainly an option for you. We've had some guests recently on the Civil Engineering Podcast talking about starting their own firm. In fact, the last episode, episode number 38, we had A.J. Whitaker talk about how he's building a firm in a non-traditional way for civil engineering firms with a remote workforce. We also had Rick DeLaGuardia on episode 36 talking about how he became an entrepreneur and he built a very successful civil firm in the building envelope field. He just came out with a book, Engineered Entrepreneur. So we have resources for both avenues, but the bottom line is that if you do want to become a partner, get it out there in the open and start to put your plan together. Remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 39. You'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the panel that you heard today, as well as links to any resources, websites, or any books that might have been mentioned in the episode. You can leave a question in the comments section or you can visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We do monitor all comments, and we will respond if you leave us one. Until next time, I wish you all the best 
in your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.